Amen. Kids, you are dismissed. Can head off to class with Miss Julie. Thanks for being here. We love having you. Yes. Good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. As we get in today, I'm pretty excited to be here with you. Just a little bit of personal sharing as we get going. Yesterday morning, I woke up at about 6.45 to my wife screaming at me. There's water pouring out of the vents in our basement. So I roused quickly um, and uh, started doing some investigation and then discovered that the night before, late at night, uh, one of my children, who will, will remain nameless, plugged the toilet upstairs. It malfunctioned and was running all night and just, you know, just right over the rim all night, just overflow. That's right, Lois, you're, you're hearing this correctly. And all night just going and then running down, like there's like a floor vent there, down the vents, down the walls. So all night, it's just going, wake up in the morning, but just slow enough that we didn't hear it, you know? Thank you, water. Water always wins, right? There's only one person more powerful than water in the world. That's Jesus. We'll talk about him later. At any rate, um, it is one of those moments where I'm happy to be here because I like you, but also it's a little less sewagey in here. Um, you know, no, it's actually not that bad. And it's one of those times where you also realize how blessed we are. Insurance companies who, you know, we could all say a lot of bad things about insurance companies. They're my favorite people right now. I'm really liking them. Paid that house insurance for a lot of years, paying off today. At any rate, um, so all that to be said, uh, my mind has been a little elsewhere this weekend. But now we're going to get into God's word, so you can just go ahead and pray with me that the Lord will focus us in on what really matters, because um, as my mom used to say when I was a kid, this too shall pass. You remember that? Okay. Well, my name is Dave, and um, I'm glad you're with us. If you're new, we're starting a new series this morning, not called Resurgence Impact, Ashley. It's called Resurrection Implications, and the idea behind this series is for us to explore what impact does the death and resurrection have on our lives? As followers of Jesus in this world, two weeks ago we celebrate Easter, and so the biggest event on the face of the earth throughout all of human history, the grave has been defeated, the tomb is empty. Now, what does that mean for you and me today? How does that change how we live and walk with God in this world? That's what we're exploring in this series. And over the next eight weeks... We're going to look at eight different verses in the New Testament that talk about this. Eight verses that say, because of the gospel, because of the resurrection, now your life should look this way as a follower of Christ. And as part of this series, we're going to, as Pastor Ashley said, memorize scripture together. We're going to memorize each of the eight verses that we look at in this series together as a church family. So that's an invitation that's a challenge. That's an offer to you. Eight weeks, eight challenges, eight opportunities to grow in Christ, eight scripture verses to tuck into your mind and carry with you as you live in this world for the rest of your life. So I'll talk a little bit more later in, this, in the sermon about why that's important. But today, let's get to our passage. And then at the end of, this, uh, at the, end of the sermon, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, which is always special and a significant time for us as a church family. So today, Galatians 2.20, our first resurrection implications verse. We're going to read it out loud together off the screen. You ready? 
Here we go. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, today we're going to ask four questions uh, to help us understand and dig into this, this verse and this passage. Here they are. What's happening here? Why does Paul write these words? Um, like, what's the context? What's the larger picture that he's, he's driving at? What's happening here? Two, what do we need to know? What do we really need to know and dig into deeply to understand this verse? And then, how does this work? How does this work in our lives? What does it look like for this to sort of play out for you and me as we walk with Jesus in this world? And then finally, why? Why should we trust? So two what's, a how, and a why today. Let's get moving because we don't want to be here all day. I mean, we're going to enjoy while we're here, but we're not going to be here forever. So let's get going. Paul is writing to the Galatians in this passage. He's writing about an incident when he was pastoring in a church in Antioch. He's he's talking about the past. He's saying, back when I pastored this church in Antioch, here's something that happened. And here's what he says back in verses 11 through 13. He says, "When, when Cephas, or when Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, Antioch was a city. It was primarily a Gentile city. Paul had gone there and he had started a church there. People had come to Christ and they were in the church now, and they're following Jesus together. And Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, had come to visit this new church and visit Paul. And when he gets there, he stayed for quite a while. He was hanging out with the people, all these Gentile believers. He was incorporating into their community. He was accepting them um, fully as followers of Jesus and members of the body of Christ. But then some men showed up from Jerusalem, some other guys, and they started saying... No, 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 no. To be a follower of Jesus, you need to follow the law. You've got to follow the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. You need to be circumcised. You need to abstain from certain kinds of foods. You need to wear certain kinds of clothes. And if people don't do this, then you really shouldn't associate with them. And in this moment, because of peer pressure, see, it happens to even Bible characters, kids, Peter starts to shift. And he starts to move away, and he stops spending time with these Gentile believers. And in our passage today, Paul is telling the church at Galatia what he did. He's saying, I called Peter out for this behavior. Verse 14, Paul says, when I saw that they, that's like Peter and Barnabas and these other other believers, these other Jews, were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And what Paul is essentially saying here is, hey, this new behavior that you're exhibiting, Peter, this exclusionary sort of posture, this racist attitude is not in line with the gospel. 
In fact, Paul is saying, you know, the implications of the gospel, if you really live from the gospel, Peter, you would not be doing this. And here's what we need to understand. Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, is not just talking about this issue. Should Peter eat with Gentile believers or not? That's, that's part of the conversation, but it's not really the big issue. Because if that's, the, if that's the only issue, we really shouldn't talk about this verse in church today. Because how many in here are wrestling with, I'm not sure what I should do this week, Pastor Dave, eat with Gentile believers or not? Anyone struggling? No, no one's struggling with that. In fact, some of you are like, I don't even know what a Gentile is. It's just someone who's not Jewish, right? Most of us in this room are Gentiles. So maybe the question is, should other people eat with us, right? Not, but it's not really the, the, that's not the main issue. Paul, the main issue is this. Will we live in accordance with the gospel, Will we live our lives aligned with the gospel? You see, what Paul is talking about here are resurrection implications. He's talking about what it means and what it looks like to allow the good news of Jesus to have sway and influence over your entire life, over every decision that you make. And he's saying to Peter in this moment, you're off track, Peter. You're out of alignment. You veered from the path. And I'll say this. This should challenge us and encourage us. This moment, this call out moment, like Peter getting all up, I mean, Paul getting all up in Peter's face should encourage you and it should challenge you. And here's why. At this point in history, Peter and Barnabas, these two church leaders, have not only been following Jesus, they have been leaders, like the primary leaders in the church for 15 to 20 years. 15 to 20 years, not just following Christ, but leading in the church. And yet they still are having trouble understanding the implications of the gospel for their lives. See, throughout this series, we're going to talk about a lot of things. We're going to say like, hey, if the gospel is ruling and reigning in you, and if you're walking in the gospel, your life will look this way and this way and this way. And we'll hit a point where you'll think to yourself, oh, my life doesn't look this way. Oh, I'm, I'm off track. That's not me. Who I should be and who I am are not the same person here. And, so the, and the point is this. That's not a moment of guilt or shame or embarrassment. Some of you in this room, you've been walking with Jesus for 10, 20, 30, 40. Fi- stop me when I get too high. 50, right? Stop. Thanks, thanks Esther. Yeah, 50. Is that where we landed? Okay, a little higher. Okay, we'll stop there, though. We're going to be gracious about it. At any rate, you've been walking with Jesus a long time, and there's this sense of like, man, I still don't have it together. Guess what? You're in good company. Even Peter and Barnabas didn't have it together because the gospel is so vast and so wide and so deep, you always have room to grow, right? So and be encouraged by that, but also be challenged by it. You aren't there yet. There's this temptation in the church to think, oh, I've heard the gospel, I understand the gospel, I've heard this message before, yada, 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 let's get on with our day. No, 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 no. You don't understand how deep it runs, how challenging it is, how much more work you have to do, because I promise you, in this series, maybe even in this message today, you're going to find places where your heart still needs to be shifted. So be encouraged and be challenged, because that's what's happening here. Paul is challenging Peter and the Galatians and Cedar Mill Bible Church with resurrection implications. Here's question two. What do we need to understand? 
What do we need to understand to really grasp this challenge? And for this question, I want to talk about two terms that Paul is addressing as he launches into this challenge for Peter and for you and me. Here's the first term we need to understand. Righteousness. Righteousness. In verse 21, this is the verse right after our verse, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Paul's big challenge to Peter in this entire chapter is, remember, remember how you gained righteousness. He's saying you have forgotten what makes you right in the eyes of God. And friends, righteousness is is a huge, huge deal. It's one of the central themes of the entire Bible. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they're there, right? Walking around, no clothes on, just in their birthday suits. And it says, and they felt no shame. Just walking around, felt no shame. In other words, they felt completely approved of. They felt completely significant. They felt completely valued. They felt completely accepted. They felt righteous because things were right. Right? That's what righteous means, for things to be right. They felt righteous. But then things went wrong. Sin and brokenness and corruption entered the world, and they stopped feeling right. They stopped feeling significant and valued and approved of and accepted, which is why the first thing they do is what? Go and put some clothes on. (laughs) Because now there's some things to hide. Now they don't feel so secure, so accepted, right? And now they're searching for the righteousness they once had. And friends, we as a human race have been searching for righteousness ever since. You see, there's this This idea that that righteousness is sort of a religious word. Maybe you feel like it's an old, musty, kind of of out-of-touch word in our world. Let me tell you this. There is not a more relevant word in the world for our culture today than the word righteousness. Because everybody, everybody on this planet, everybody in Cedar Mill, Oregon, everybody in Portland, Everybody in the United States is searching and longing for righteousness. Because righteousness, again, is just simply, I long for things to be right. I long for things to be right with me and other people. I long for things to be right between me and myself. I want to feel good about me. We got a lot of words to describe that. It's really just words that describe like this longing for righteousness. I ultimately want things to be right between me and God. You see, again, righteousness is about significance. It's about proving that you have value. It's about knowing that. This is why sometimes people work so, so hard to get good grades in school. You, know, you remember those, those kids, students you know, these students? Like, if they got a B plus, their life would be over. They are so focused on being like the smartest, the best, the best grades. Like like anything shy of perfection is a complete and utter failure. That's a search for righteousness. This is why people give time and energy and even lots of money these days for extra coaching so that they can be the very best on their sports team. Why? I need to be significant. This is why we, we give 
We, we seek to thrive and be the best in the arts or to succeed or be the best in our jobs. We are searching for righteousness. Friends, this is why I think Wordle has taken off in our world. We play Wordle in our house. You guys play the Wordle? I, I'm the best in our family. Uh, my wife, if she was here, would say, no, he's not. I'm better, but that would be a lie. Um, you play the Wordle, right? Did you play yesterday? How many did you get it in yesterday? Because I got it in three. You see, I beat you, and now I feel significant and smart and special. And uh, see, Wordle is just one more place to where I can seek out and try to feel righteous, good about myself, right? Uh, at least in our family. Righteousness is also relational. It's also about approval and acceptance. This is why little kids, you think about like little kids. Do, they, do little kids know they need righteousness? Yes. You know how you see it? They come running out of their rooms. Look what I did. Look what I made. Look what I can do. And then they try to do a handstand. It's like a somersault. And it's like, that was terrible. It wasn't even good. But they're just so longing for acceptance and approval, right? This is why even as we grow up, we continue to ask questions of ourselves like, did they like my outfit? Did they notice my hair? Am I as funny as him? Am I as smart as her? Are my comments poignant enough? Right? Are my clothes cool enough? You ever think about how cool your clothes are? Don't lie. See, even I sometimes will go to my daughters now and say, does this outfit make me look old? Right? Or, or, does this outfit make me look like I'm trying too hard to be young? Right? And they say yes to both. Probably. At any rate, the point is, is that we all want this approval and this acceptance. It's a longing for righteousness. I'm going to add this little extra fact in here, by the way. Um, a lot of times religion in our world gets talked about as like this thing that represses. Like, ah, oh, religion is just trying to keep you from being who you really are supposed to be and getting what you really want and, you know, having what will really make you you. Like, you'll hear like sexual, you know, religion is just rep repressing sexuality. It's actually the opposite. Do you understand? You see, we're longing for this righteousness, and the longing in our heart is God-sized. Like, I need God-sized approval and significance and value. And we fill it with little things like, ooh, that really cute girl likes me. Now I feel special. And I try to fill this giant void with this little thing, right? You see, if I can just get that really beautiful person to like me or notice me or sleep with me, now I feel filled up, at least for a little while. You see, that's just repressed faith. It's actually not what your soul longs for. We all long for righteousness. And this leads to our, our second term, justification. I'm going for big Bible words today, right? Justification. Justification is the process by which we attempt to become right again, right? Now, here's something to think about and understand. When you justify something, you don't change the fact of it. You just change the view of it. Now, I'll explain what I mean. I'll give you an example. I got this from another pastor this week. Pretend like you're in school and a teenager hits another high school student in the face. All of a sudden, you're in the hallway, and a kid just knocks another kid out, literally knocks him out cold. Boom, he's on the ground, out cold. And of course, a whole group of students and teachers who were around rush over, and the principal who actually saw the whole thing happen comes over and grabs the kid who punched the other kid and says, you're done, you're out of here, you're expelled. But then the punching kid says, 
wait a minute, wait a minute, before you throw me out, will you take a look in that kid's pocket? And when they do, they find that in that kid's pocket was a gun, and his hand was actually on the gun. And now all of a sudden, what this kid did, the punching kid, what he did goes from being horrible, like we're going to expel him for it, to heroic. (laughs) He goes from horrible to heroic, not because what he did actually changed, but the way we view it changes. That's justification. He tells a story to justify himself. And the question that Paul is asking us, he's asking Peter and us today is this, what changes the way God sees you and me? What's the story that changes the way God sees our sin? Right? Because all of us in here are sinners, aren't we? Do you know that you're a sinner? I mean, have you lied recently? Like, have you fudged the truth? Have you exaggerated to make yourself look a little better than you actually are? Have you done it in a sermon, maybe about Wordle? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, have you, have you, how long has it been since you lusted? I mean, what about being selfish? I mean, are you always unselfish? Do you do selfish things? Instead of being generous or gracious, are you judgmental or condemning? Maybe, maybe you said a bad word this week on the pickleball court. I have a friend who goes to this church who I happen to know did this just yesterday, and I don't see him, or else I would call him out and bring him up here for some discipline. But we'll (laughs) skip that, I guess. In other words, but, but here's the question, friends. In light of your sin, in light of your failures, in light of the fact that you know you're not who you're supposed to be, what's the story that you say to God that says, God, you should see me differently than I am? You see, everyone's into justification. We all want to justify ourselves because we all want to be righteous. And I'll offer you two stories that our culture tells, two justification stories. Here's the first one. It's the moralist or legalist story. We believe we can work to be good enough. The common way people express this is to simply say, I am a good person. Why why does God accept you? Why are you righteous? I am a good person. That's That's a story of justification. It's a secular version of it. I'm a good person because I'm nice, I'm friendly, I volunteer, I give to charity, I don't lie or cheat or steal, I have good kids, I'm accepting of people. You hear that one a lot, right? And because of all these things, the list goes on, I am justified. That, out, that good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, and now I'm right with God. But friends, it's not just secular people who adopt this narrative. Religious people have often the same story. It's just, actually, sometimes church becomes just one more place where you get to work on doing the good deeds to say, like, I'm a good person. I pray. I go to church. I give. I serve. I put lots of Christian knickknacks around my house. I don't cuss or smoke or chew or go with girls who do. I don't know if you can say that anymore or not, but I did. So that's like, that's, those are just justification stories. That's one story. I'm a good person. I'm good enough to be right with God. Here's the second story, and this one's increasingly popular in our world. If the first story is the legalist story, this one might be called the lovest story. Why are things right between me and God? Why are things right between the God of the universe and myself? Not because I work really hard to follow some set of rules, but because truth and good and right and wrong are all relative, and God loves me just the way I am. He just loves me. He doesn't really care about all 
the bad stuff that I think and say and do. He doesn't really care, even if I do stuff that's selfish or immoral or judgmental or illegal or even evil. God doesn't really care that much about justice. He certainly doesn't hold it against me because he just loves me. See what that is? That's just a justification narrative that we tell ourselves so that we can convince ourselves that we are righteous. It's a way of shifting God's view of you. But friends, in our passage today, in our verse today, Paul is saying something crazy. He's saying something radical. He's saying, if you are a follower of Jesus, the good news, the gospel says that you are justified with the God of the universe, not by you compensating for your sin or by God simply ignoring your sin. It's not by you being good enough or God being tolerant enough. The gospel says you are justified by what he has done to change his view of your sin. He has, he has done something to change his view of your sin. God offers us a justification narrative that actually works. Here it is. Here's how Paul says it. I have been crucified with Christ. Why are you right with the God of the universe? What is it that justifies you and all your sin? You have been crucified with Christ. Paul is essentially saying that, that when, you, when you walk up to that kid in the school hallway that's laying on the ground because you punched him out, and the principal walks up, that's God, and says, tell me why I should see this differently. Tell me why I should see your sin differently than, than what it really is. You, say, you don't say, well, it's because I've done a lot of other good things to overcompensate for that. It's not because you say, like, well, it didn't really matter that much, Lord. Like, you know, his pain doesn't really matter. No, the answer, the answer that changes the way the God of the universe sees your sin is to say, Christ paid the penalty for my sin. The sentence for my sin has already been served. You see, in the gospel, when it comes to sin, God cares about it, and he knows that we can't deal with it. He does care about it. He is just, and he also knows that we can't deal with it. So Paul is saying, remember church, remember Christians very clearly. The reason that you are seen as righteous before God is because when he looks at you, he sees Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. But listen, but listen, it's not just about how God sees you. It's now about how that, that reality plays out in who you're becoming. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is the answer to our third question, friends. How does this work? What difference does it make? How do we now live in the body as people who are justified by grace and made righteous with God? How do we actually start to become righteous, become like Jesus? Paul says two things here. He says, one, we live by faith in the Son of God. We're powered by Faith, we are transformed by faith. Paul says here that the same power that saved you is also available to sanctify you. The power by which we have been forgiven of our sin also serves to transform us from our sin. You see, this is not what most Christians do. Most Christians understand, I have been saved by grace. 
I'm justified, not because of what I did, but because of what God did in my life, right? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven someday, not because I'm so good, but because Jesus paid the price. He paved the way. And now, and now, as a follower of Jesus for the rest of my life, I'm just going to grind it out and work really hard in my own strength to follow the rules. Like, he saved me, and I'll work on self-improvement now. That's what most people believe Christianity is. I'm saved, and now I work on self-improvement. I'm on the self-improvement plan with maybe a little bit of God sprinkled in, a sermon here and there. And that is not what the gospel says. That is not the implications of the resurrection. So Paul is saying, no, it's not your strength. It's his strength in you. It's not doing it on your own. It's allowing him to do it in you. But he also says something else. He says, a Christian isn't just someone who's passive either. So you're transformed by God's work, but that doesn't mean you're passive. It's not just something, it's not like you pray, Lord, help me be more like Christ. And you go to sleep and then he zaps you and you wake up and wow, like all those struggles, all that sin, all that selfishness, it's just gone automatically. He just did it to me. I showed up to church just enough times and now I'm like Jesus. No. Listen to what he says. Paul says, the life I live, I live by faith. There's this, this active engagement. Paul is saying, if you want to be transformed, it's God's strength, but we step into it. We, we cooperate with God in what he wants to do in us. And, and we see this all throughout the scriptures. Paul does this really weird thing grammatically. For you English people, you'll appreciate this. Constantly in the New Testament, he he talks about life in Christ and like living out this sanctified, transformed life. And he uses two different sort of uh, tones of voice. The first, he talks in the imperative. And when ta Paul talks in the imperative, he's commanding. He's saying, do this and do it now. He's like a general, he's like a sergeant, right? Act this way, he'll say. Think this way, talk this way. Do this stuff, that's imperative. But then he always pairs that imperative with the passive voice. And the passive voice is when something happens to you, when you don't have control over it. You don't have the ability to sort of affect the outcome. It's out of your hands. So Paul says, do this thing that you're not in control of. Paul says, engage this thing, make this thing happen that you can't make happen. And you're going, well, I, that, what does that mean? I don't know how to do that. Here's what it means. You do everything you can do to allow God to do what only he can do in you. That's my favorite sentence of the entire sermon. So if you're asleep right now, wake up and write this down. You do everything you can do to allow God to do what only he can do in you. In other words, you actively surrender. You purposefully submit. You intentionally depend on him. You do everything you can do to allow God to do what only he can do in you. And maybe the best image for this is the image of a sailboat. You think about a sailboat, how many of you have been on a sailboat, right? You understand the concept because when you're on a sailboat, you can't power it. You do not have the, the ability to make it go, to make it move, to give it power. You can't create wind. You can stand on the deck and blow, but it'll do absolutely nothing. But what you can do is set your sails in just the right way to catch the wind when it does blow. 
And friends, this is a picture of the resurrected life. You cannot become like Jesus in your own strength, but you can choose to allow God to do the work that he longs to do in you. And this is why spiritual disciplines are so important. This is why like engaging in your faith, not just here on Sunday morning, but throughout the week is essential to walking with Christ. Not because when you pray, you're earning God's favor or because when you read scripture, you're sort of like transforming yourself. No, when you pray, specifically when you learn to listen in prayer and have real conversation with God and when you learn to read scripture and allow the voice of God to sink into your soul and when you memorize verses and you lodge the word of God into your mind for all time, what you're doing in those moments is you're essentially saying, God, I want to cooperate with you and what you want to do with me. You're setting the sails of your life up to catch the wind. That's why it's so essential. This is why we're asking you to, to memorize scripture today. Right? This is why we want you to memorize eight verses, because it's essentially saying, like, raise a sail in your life and allow the Lord to push you forward and give you power to change. See, this series is not a list of things you should be doing. This is not a, a list of rules for Jesus' followers to add to their never-ending to-do list. I know you're busy. I know you've got lists of chores. I know you've got stuff to get done. I know there's life is hectic and frantic and full, and I'm not here to simply say, and here's 10 more things that should go on your list. No, I'm here to say, allow God to do some things in your life, but that doesn't just happen unless you intentionally engage, actively surrender, purposely submit, which leads to our last question. Why? Why would you choose to surrender to God? I mean, in this search for righteousness, we all sense it, right? Approval, acceptance, value, significance. I need it, I want it, I long it. My heart is yearning for it. You can sit here and deny it and say, it's not important to me, Pastor Dave. A liar. So I'll say to you today. You long for it, right? So why would I look to God for it? Because sailing takes some patience. Why not just go out and buy a jet boat, right? Why not just get like a Yamaha or a Mercury engine and stick it to the back of your boat and go, you know, this girlfriend will make me happy. Success at this job will do it. Some money will, if I buy this thing, it'll make me feel good. I can just, I can speed this process along. I can feel good about myself tomorrow. Let's go down to the Columbia store and buy some cool clothes and I'm feeling better instantly. Why would I choose to like lean on Jesus? And the answer is in the very last phrase of our verse today, do you hear what Paul says? He says, adopt this justification story, right? And then live out of the strength and power of God in your life. Lean into that. Here's why. Here's why you should trust him. Because he loved you and gave himself for you. Friends, all these other things that, that promise you value, significance, acceptance, approval, they may make you feel good for a little while, but they will leave you. They will abandon you. They don't care about you. They won't sacrifice for you. In the end, they'll leave you disappointed. Right? See, love and sacrifice are always in a direct relationship. The more someone loves you, the more they'll sacrifice for you. 
If they won't sacrifice for you, then they don't love you very much. And here's what this verse says. You can trust God because you can see how very much he loves you. He sent his one and only son to earth to take on human flesh, to endure every single temptation we will face, and to die a brutal death on the cross, to take on the grave and death and hell itself, right? He did that. Why? Because he loves you. That's the extent of God's love for you. Your job doesn't love you that much. Money doesn't even care, right? Popularity is fleeting. God will sacrifice for you. He has sacrificed for you. And that's how you can see how much he loves you. You see, when you understand the immensity of God's love, it helps you to step in to trusting him to lead your life. It helps you to raise the sails and say, yeah, Lord, you're the power. You may not be as instantly gratifying as those brownies, as that Netflix show, as that clothing as that cool new hairstyle, as that fill in the blank for whatever it is for you that you're tempted to lean on, right? You may not be as instantly gratifying, but in the long haul, you will be so much more satisfying because what you offer will actually fill me and stay with me. You see, friends, this is what we remind ourselves of when we share in the Lord's Supper. It's what this meal is all about. It's about coming back together and going, oh yeah, the gospel, I've gotten off track this week. I got a little too focused on that new car I'm buying. I got a little too focused on that person's opinion of me. I started to get a little too focused on, you know, how accepted I am on social media, right? And now this, this brings us back to say, Lord, my righteousness is ultimately found in you. This justification story, your son given for me, that's the one that will fill me. That's the one. I, line me back up. We are Peter, this meal is Paul. This meal is saying, get back in line with the gospel. Do you, feel it? Do you see it? Do you see what it offers? Do this, Jesus says, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the love and power that I have come to offer you. So let's share in the Lord's Supper together today. Do you have the elements? If you don't have them, if you missed them on the way in, just raise your hand and some of our ushers will bring them to you. See, friends, what's offered in this meal, it's not just another religious activity to check off the list. This is a reminder to you and me that we are, we are being offered life. Jesus says, life that is truly life. Life in abundance. He's saying that whole of righteousness in your heart and in your soul and in your mind. He's saying, I have come to fill it. Don't settle for cheap imitations. Young people, don't settle for cheap imitations. Look to Jesus. Look to the gospel. He loved you this much. He hung on a cross, and his body was broken for you. He says, do this. Take this bread. and Remember that. Do it in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat together. Says, then after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, what makes you right, what justifies you, is found in my sacrifice, the blood that I shed on the cross. Remember that. Don't forget it. Walk in it and live in it. Raise the sails of your life. The blood of Christ has taken drink.
Father, that's our prayer. That you'd line us back up with the gospel. All the places where we veered off track, that you just pull us back in. Give us the strength. Give us the intentionality. Give us the purposefulness to surrender and depend and submit to you. We trust you, Lord, because you love us. You love us immeasurably and abundantly. You're trustworthy. And so we look to you and we rely on you and we thank you. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.